House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome to the Julie Sav Show tonight. And with me, I'm joined by Jeff Holder, who is a screenwriter and an author of some of the most amazing paranormal material, um, where he explores in a multitude of books um, different theories and um, scientific um, evaluations of uh, the paranormal, whether that be from poltergeist to um, writing thrillers. So thank you for, for joining me tonight, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. And just before we were um, on air, we, we spoke a little bit about some of the things that, that you've done that um, we can touch upon, because there is just so so much out there that you have written. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't have a social life, so I, I, I write books instead. <laughs> I think that's, that's clear <laughs> by the sheer volume of books you've written. How many are there in total now? Uh, well, I've just finished my 40th, but there's a bit of backlog in the publishing world, so I think it's only, I think it's only about... 35 out there. Wow. That's just, that's just so... I mean, one of the things I read about you is, is how, um, how well you, you undertake your research. And it made me think about, um, certainly in my own academic um, time when I was at university, etc., I was thinking I really dis disliked researching. I found it really difficult to research things unless I was absolutely passionate about it. And you've researched and written about quite a, a lot of subjects within the, the realms of paranormal. Um, so you've got all those books, and then you've got your, your, um, your screenwriting role as well. And I just wondered how different they were. Well, um, the, all the books are non-fiction, um, and um, they are, as you know, I do a great deal of research for all of those. Um, the screenwriting, uh, where I specialise in in uh, the hot in horror and the supernatural, um, yeah. and that, th those sort of genres, they're great because uh, I can just make things up, um, and therefore uh, that's, a, that's a completely different muscle. You know, um, you just move uh, probably different parts of your brain. Probably one is uh, focused very much on what, if not what has definitely happened, what people have said has happened. You know, so, yeah. you know that is research based. The other is, well, you know, I'm writing about the supernatural, so I can make it up anything I like. That's, that's true, isn't it? It's really interesting. So what, would you, what do you find more interesting, making things up or, or looking at what people's experiences are? Well, to be honest, I actually enjoy both to, to an equal extent. As there's nothing I like better on, you know, on a Monday. I'll be you know, writing a screenplay about zombies. Um, yeah. We love zombies. Um, and on Tuesday... I'll be sort of reading some dense academic uh, work um, that is filled with fascinating insights into you know, European witchcraft in the 17th century or something like that. You know, I find both of them equally fascinating. You see, I mean, you, you, you said about zombies there and, oh, we love zombies, but we are a nation that is fascinated by them. Um, and from different kind of films, etc., that have come out, there's that uh, rejuvenation of interest from, from young people. Um, and I remember not not that many years ago when my children were a bit younger, they said to me, it's all right, Mum, we've got a plan if there's a zombie apocalypse. And they, they looked at me very, they just, you know, it was, it was clear that they had thought this out. 
And they said, uh, and after, we've, after we've hidden and we've taped up all the windows of the house, etc., um, and we've popped into town, we've stocked up on food, because we lived on, in the west coast of Wales at this point. Mm-hmm. He said, they said, um, then we're going to um, we're gonna have to shut the dog out because she's going to give us away. <laughs> and the problem is, you're going to then cry over the dog, so you're going to have to go too, we're really sorry, but you're going to have to fend for yourself. And I was it's like, good. they brought this through. <laughs> it's, good. it's good that you've, you've, you've raised some independently-minded children there. Yeah, so, so much so they're going to shut me out in a zombie yeah. apocalypse <laughs> in, case, in case I grizzle over the dog. <laughs> so, yeah, but they'd absolutely thought it through. Um, and then and they went off onto these, um, these mad ideas that they had about, you know, building different... different um, tunnels etc to get out to sea and all sorts but kids are generally very interested in, in what would happen if well um, i've got a uh, a, a, zo- a zombie film is, is going to be in production it's going to be filmed later this year in ohio and in my film the zombies are the heroes wow the humans are the bad guys the zombies are the heroes Mind you, they are articulate zombies, so, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and how have you, um, has any of that kind of been formed on um, what we know from history in terms of, you know, different beings in the paranormal world? Has that informed your, that, that particular... Not, not on that film, but um, there is a synergy between the, t- the two writing areas. Um, I'm currently... Um, I've got a job writing a script for a British supernatural thriller. Yeah. Uh, and um, the reason that the producers came to me is because that they knew I knew a lot about the world of uh, the of parapsychology because the the central yeah. character is a a psychic who can who can who foresees his death at the hands of a serial killer. Wow. Um, and um, which is good, you know, it's good, good, good story. Um, and um, it's based on a, it's based on a, a, a book. And I, I sort of looked at the book and I thought, well, you know, this guy's kind of like a superhero. He's got all these psychic powers, so he wouldn't have any problem at all. So I, I sort of listed all the psychic powers. You know, he's got precognition, he's got telekinesis, he's got telepathy, he's got remote viewing, all of these things. And so I was informed of these things. I said, you, you can't have him do all of these things. You know, he has to be limited. And I said, oh, yeah, no one's ever thought about that before. Maybe, yeah, so you've got the job. So, you know, there is a synergy between the two. <laughs> well, the only thing missing is like a Wonder Woman outfit, and for that to be a, a woman, and I could do that. I don't look good in Wonder Woman outfits. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just not my style. Maybe it's mine. Maybe. I have, I have no doubt. That, that guy, the main character is the wrong sex, clearly. <laughs> well... Um, it is outside my power to, um, to change I'm, that. I'm teasing. My day job is, is actually as a social worker. I manage um, a, a team of social workers working in child protection. I'm not quite sure they would like to see me prancing around in um, Lycra. Oh, you know, dress down Friday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe. Okay, so, um, you know, what we've just been talking about really touches on. You said something, and I'm just trying to think back to what it was you said that was absolutely true, and it was... I related it to paranormal investigations, and it was, yeah, it was about how we we go and we we look at other people's experiences. So when you're writing about poltergeists, or when you're writing about 
anything that, um, say, for example, if we're writing about UFO experiences, etc., we'd be writing about what somebody else is reporting on. That's where the research base comes in. Um, and that's the same with paranormal investigating. You know, we should be going out as teams and, and investigating somebody's experience because we're trying to either replicate or understand that experience and the causes of it. So in terms of your research into poltergeist, because you've got a, a web mini-series currently, um, what is a poltergeist? What sort of research did you do initially to understand poltergeist activity and the different theoretical frameworks behind it? Um, I basically read an awful lot of old books. Uh-huh. Um, well, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of where it started. Um, the poltergeist activity, although obviously it wasn't... It, Nobody used the word poltergeist because that's a, 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 um, a word that dates to the 16th century, I think. But people were describing what we would recognize as poltergeist activity. Um, as, as, well, the earliest case I know is from France, it's from the 4th century AD. So uh, there's, been a, there's been centuries and centuries of people writing about poltergeists. And in the early days, there would have been, there would have been a, a very... Um, distinctive interpretation because most of the people who were writing about them were members of the, the Christian church and so the, 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 the sole cause that they could attribute to these uh, outrages were, were demons, you know, they had to be demons um, and then as a secondary cause they could be caused by witches, which, you know, of course are, witches are human, demons yeah. are non-human so those, for, for centuries those were the two causes nobody used, nobody thought about ghosts so if you go, go look at the sort of the, the data, you know, the, the literature up to the up to the Middle Ages, nobody says these things were caused by ghosts. They're caused by demons or they're caused by witches. Ghosts have come quite late into the sort of the panoply of, of ideas that people have about what's what's causing these truly bizarre things. And whereas these days I doubt many people would uh, immediately think, oh, a witch is causing this, because in general, decline, you know, belief in witchcraft has declined. But I'm willing to bet that most people, when, when um, presented or with an encounter with a poltergeist, would immediately think ghost, you know, that is to say, a spirit of the restless dead. Mm -hmm. um, they, but they wouldn't think witchcraft. And like all of these things, things go in, in fashions, you know? So ghosts are the 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 explanation of of the of the of the day, where and you know, witchcraft isn't, but you know nobody thought that, people thought that differently you know a thousand years ago, and then you get you go on to the you know the, what historians call the early modern period, the sort of sixteenth seventeenth uh, century, and the, a lot of the records that we find from across Europe, uh, that people attributing these things to fairies. Now, these aren't. The little tinkerbells of popular imagination, uh, fairies or brownies or many other household uh, spirits, are come more like goblins, for uh, in, in the term, and they were um, mercurial, malicious, um, and to be avoided in many cases at all costs. And so many of the the the, uh, the cases that are recorded from that period, people are saying it's the fairies or it's the brownies or it's the hobgoblins. They're not saying it's witchcraft, or they're certainly not saying it's ghosts. Ghosts are, you know, pretty late. So you can see there's different interpretations throughout history. And given your your extensive knowledge about 
you know, so many reported um, poltergeist incidents or accounts. Where would where where do you sit on that? Well, I have written two books on poltergeists, and I can tell you with absolute certainty, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, in, you know, the, the 20th century saw the rise of different explanations, saw the rise of the the, 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 the psychic turmoil of a particular individual that the poltergeist activity yeah. was was associated with a focus. We, we um, see that in films like Poltergeist when, like, when that was first released, yeah, didn't we? That's right. Well, no, actually, I think the uh, the, um, the the first Poltergeist, uh, that's because uh, there's buried, uh, the house is over an Indian burial ground. Oh, uh, right, okay, yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, that, that, that sort of notion of the psychic turmoil of an individual, that's a, very much a post-Freudian 20th century idea. Nobody thought about that in the 19th century. You know, that was ridiculous. Um, then you also get um, a sort of small uh, trail of ideas from the late 19th, early 20th century on the idea of topers, the idea that uh, poltergeists are things that have been created by a mind. So they're not sort of insensate turmoil, they are actually deliberately, or perhaps sometimes accidentally, but mostly deliberately created, and that they go off and have a semi-independent life of their own, which is why they're causing all these problems. My favourite, my absolute favourite explanation of all time for what poltergeists are came, comes from a book published in the 19th century, about uh, written by a pair of uh, British aristocrats who'd... Um, decided to take a tour in Bulgaria and there they in the, in the remote villages they were talking to the, the villagers about their beliefs and um, they, they were told that uh, there were these kind of problems in, in, these, in these villages with supernatural beings and they said well what's causing these because they were obviously describing a poltergeist they said what's causing them they said oh that's the invisible vampires wow <laughs> yeah, and so their their um their belief system put vampires into two parts. Um, adult vampires were physical, visible beings who behaved like the vampires that we're familiar with from folklore and fiction. Whereas, but when these vampires were young, when they were in the larval stage, they were invisible, and it was those that were causing the uh, poltergeist cases. And I've never heard anyone else use the idea of the, 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 the invisible vampires as a poltergeist source, but it remains my, my favourite uh, idea. So what are the realms of poltergeist activity that, that you've seen reported? Because as you've rightly said, you know, way back um, when we're talking kind of, sort of 1635, you talked a little bit about a case um, where it was, it was the first case that you could find that, that was a, there was a poltergeist that would do domestic Kind of no, this, uh, no this, this is the first case in Scotland. In Scotland, sorry. In Scotland, but, yeah. I've written a book on poltergeists in Scotland. But that, but that, um, you know, that was a poltergeist kind of setting the table and and sort of undertaking a domestic task. What's this kind of extremes that you've seen in terms of well that you've heard reported in terms of poltergeist activity? Um, oh well. One of my sort of favourite cases is from uh, Glenluce, which is in the, the southwest of Scotland. It's for, it lasted for 22 months between right. 1654 and 56, although there were four month gaps between that. It's like the pot went on holiday for, 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 for a few months. And um, like many poltergeist outbreaks, it sort of started quite 
small and escalated. Um, and it, start, it started with sort of whistling noises and rappings and, and that sort of thing. And then it started throwing great quantities of stones through the doors, through the windows, down the chimney. But although they were thrown with great force, when they hit people, they seemed to slow down and didn't actually hurt people, for the, for the moment anyway. And then, they, then the pod got into uh, slashing and cutting the family's clothing, even when they were wearing them, you know, pulling the blankets off beds, and, and um, it, 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 it attacked the livelihood of, of the family as well. The family were weavers, you know, weavers worked at home using very large looms, and uh, it, it cut and destroyed its, his tools and his loom, so he temporarily lost his livelihood. So that's, you know, that's quite... Um, mm. And then he started, you know, attacking people with pins, so leaving uh, prick marks in the skin, and, um, you know, throwing, pulling turf off the roof and off the walls, um, setting fires. And then, this is my... This is the bit where it gets really weird. It developed an ego. You know, I was talking about things are, everything is fashion. You know, there were different fashions by interpretation. There seems to be fashions in poltergeists as well, because 17th century poltergeists were very voluble. They loved talking. They loved discussing with their people that they were terrorizing. But you know, I, I can't think of too many modern poltergeists who were, who were that, you know, uh, garrulous. Um, and this one was, um, it, it, it wasn't just that it could speak a lot. It could speak in an educated manner. When the local ministers turned up to, to expel it, it first addressed them in Latin and then in English, although not, not pure English. It, it spoke in Lowland Scots, which was the form of English spoken in that area. Um, and it debated scripture with the ministers back and forth, they're knocking back and forth, quoting the Bible at each other. Um, it um, mocked them, it shouted at them, and at the end of the day, in front of numerous witnesses, it said that it would bash the brains out of the youngest daughter of the household. Now, at this point, the pult had been around for a few weeks, and had been vocal for a few weeks. And to just give you the indication just how normalized this had become, the girl who'd just been threatened with death just mm. shrugged her shoulders and carried on doing her domestic chores because she'd heard it all before. Wow. Uh, yeah, and that, right, so that, that's just like funny. Then it gets truly weird. The, 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 um, the, the clergyman present and the other witnesses see a naked hand and an elbow beating the floor until the house was shaking, and um, it was, then it said to them, did you see the hand? And he said, that wasn't my hand, that was my father's coming from the pit. And so he claimed to be the son of Satan. Um, and then after six months, it just stopped for no reason. Four months of quiet, it came back with a renewed series of assaults, not quite so serious, but this time it really had a go at food. Um, all the food was polluted, dirtied, uh, spoiled, so much so that this family, you know, they were a poor family, they were close to starving. Um, and then it just stopped again. And then four months holiday, and it came back, once again, doing the, doing the things it was, it was doing before, um, 
throwing stones, assaulting the family in their beds with wooden sticks, um, setting one of the beds on fire, and then it just stopped. One of the things that I find extraordinary and quite fascinating about studying more and more poltergeist cases you read about, the more senseless they seem. They start for no reason. They continue for a day, weeks, months, years in some cases, and then they stop for no reason, and the people are never troubled again. So in terms of the, the kind of the phases that, that we go through in terms of our belief about how and why poltergeist activity begins, um, where would that fit? Is there oh, any they, sort of... They, they, well, they would definitely consider... Definite, all, all witnesses were um, convinced that they were dealing with some kind of demon. Right. And what about the ages of the children in the household? So if we, were, if we now reflected back and we were yes. saying, okay, so... Yeah. Let's review oh. that. Is there is there an adolescent teen or? Yes, he had. Um, if I remember, I think he had he had several children of various ages, not given their exact ages, and they also had a servant. Um, and uh, the youngest daughter, uh, were not given her age. She was the first one to be threatened, uh, being thrown in by a voice thrown her into the well, um, and then. Uh, they thought at the time that perhaps it was connected to uh, one of the one of the members of the family, but they couldn't be. Con they weren't really convinced. They didn't. Get, they didn't get anything out. Or we're all we're told is that they had children of various ages. I think about five. I think so. That might have included a teenager. Uh, in fact, there's a good chance that they included a teenager. But uh, you know, the the records are not just don't 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 tell us that. Interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many different theories about how and why, as you say, we go through these phases of, of beliefs. And, and then when you look at something as early as 1635, and there are so many, again, of those beliefs at play. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, 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 they would see it that way, would they? Yeah, and there was, there was, a, there was another case um, in, in the same sort of neck of the woods, which is from 1695, and where, they, where the, the... Although they thought it was a demon... Um, the, the there was a sense that people were thinking that perhaps it was focused on more on one of the uh, children in the household, and um, he sent all his children away to different to different to the neighbours and had them come back one at a time, which is very interesting. It's quite like an experimental activity, and when uh, one of his sons returned, the the um, the the, the uh, activity broke broke out again, um, so it suggested that he might have been the focus. Um, but we're not told exactly how old he is, other than that he was young, so he, he was probably a teenager. And you've done you've done um, a lot of statistical work in terms of those those cases you've looked at in Scotland. How did you break up the? It's 134 cases you you recorded. How, how, how did you break them up in terms of well, your statistics? Well, I just, I just looked at the various activities you know, and came up with sort of sen you know, sensible categories. Um, this is sort of, I had 134 cases over almost 400 years. And the most frequent activity in these podcast cases was the movement of objects or furniture. 
and that would, took place in almost 72% of cases. So that was the thing that probably, and I think if we think about it, that's probably what people would notice most would be the movement of things. And noises, such as taps, knocks, bangs, cries, thumps, and all that kind of thing, that's, those were present in almost 66% of the cases. So objects moving and noises were by far the most frequent of the phenomena reported over, over almost, almost four centuries. Something I thought was very interesting because I didn't, I'd always assumed that poltergeist cases weren't really associated with apparitions, but I found that if I included anything that, that you could categorize as a, as a, as a apparition, which might include shadows, moving shadows, that mm. uh, 27% of the cases featured ap apparitions of some kind or another. I was surprised to discover such a, such yeah. a high a high percentage. And just behind that was displacement. That's you know, it's when an object disappears from one part, part place and is found elsewhere. So that, that occurred in a quarter of all, all cases as well. I'm surprised with the um, apparition. Yeah, I'm not so surprised it's so high because we, that's how I think historically and, and even today people will describe that kind of poltergeist, you know, something that's noisy that um, you, can, you can hear and see much more than, than a ghost which is kind of either residual or just kind of stood in front of you, etc. But, um, but in terms of poltergeist activity, what's interesting actually that all of those categories you would see play out on many paranormal um, television programs day in day out, but they're not called poltergeists. No, no, uh, you, know, um, you say tomato, I say tomato. Yeah, and, I, I, and that's not to criticise. I'm wondering whether or not that's because of public perception around the term poltergeist. Yeah, I, th I think it's possible. People tend to see that as, as a more scary. Um, a scary sort of entity to come across. It's something that as soon as you say, oh, it's a poltergeist, it means something might be thrown at you because that's, that's how, um, you know, it's been presented in the past. And, of course, then um, when you have um, television programmes on air which, which clearly are saying, oh, this has been thrown, you know, oh, the book's landed here, I can hear this, tap three times, that's all coming under that kind of, poltergeist activity, but the word is not used. The word is not used because I think in, in our current times we prefer the word ghost. We're comfortable with the idea of ghosts, the idea of the restless undead for some, for some reason. That, that, that's something that is, that's, that's, that's the fashion at the moment and it has been for some time. Um, poltergeists, uh, I think ghosts are a little bit comforting and poltergeists are scary because poltergeists mm. don't don't seem to be very human. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, sense, the sense that I get. You know, they, um, they don't seem to act in, in ways that we can really easily understand. Poltergeists are other, whereas ghosts are us. And I think that, 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 that difference is very, um, very key to the, you know, the way that people talk about these things. And I, I, looking at the other things that, you know, that, that were less common in, in, the, in these uh, cases. I've got you know, doors being unlocked or locked or opened or closed, damage to objects and furniture, throwing of stones, uh, very common in early cases in 17th, 18th century, uh, not so common these days. Electrical effects, this is quite interesting. Um, over a quarter of cases from 
the time when electricity was, became common in houses uh, feature some form of electrical events. Uh, assaults, yeah, they're relatively common, sort of uh, voices, yeah. fire, smoke. Um, some men, 10% of the cases featured witchcraft or magic, but they were, they were all early cases. None of those are contemporary cases. Um, apports, you know, objects that appear out of nowhere, they, they appeared in only 7% of the cases. Um, uh, food being interfered with. What very, very common in the 18th and 19th centuries. Very uncommon now. Um, people reporting visible, invisible hands, yeah, about 7% mm -hmm. again. Temperature effects, low temperatures, usually low temperatures, very rarely high temperatures. Water, I thought this was interesting, only 7% of cases involved some form of water, and the same percentage involving writing. Um, and then, and a slightly lower percentage involving smells. But where smells were involved, they were all vile. And quite a lot of modern cases involve uh, uh, smells. Um, interesting thing, um, fairies. Fairies being mentioned in 5% of the cases. Once again, these are all older cases, particularly 19th century yeah. cases. Um, in six cases, the, the poltergeist either named itself or responded to names that were suggested by the humans present. Um, and um, it, it, in five cases, there was music or tunes involved. And then you got other things such as, you know, telephone effects, clothes being slashed, animals being interfered with, voices imitating the living, um, blood and maggots appearing in, in the kitchen. And nice. uh, yeah, yeah, so I think, think, this was it, poltergeists are not wanted on the voyage. People are kind of okay with the idea of ghosts, you know? They've got messages for us from the beyond. But poltergeists, now they're just like, you know, they're just like really violent, unpleasant, unpredictable guests at the party that you want to leave immediately. You know, and I think that's what, that's what they're... So those are the sort of the activities that I was recording from the, those 134 cases. It's interesting how many of those still play out today. Okay, we get less of the food and the maggots and the blood, but we still definitely get many of the other um, mm. effects that you've listed. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you see written reports from paranormal groups, investigative um, science. You still see the same, same recordings, so that kind of thing's moving. Um, I mean, interesting about the writing one. I think that's, that is quite interesting. And the water, because there's lots of different theories around, around water and, and paranormal activity. So, um, yeah, I found that's quite an interesting figure. In terms oh, okay. of um, more recent um, in investigations and, and um, poltergeist activity, what's one of the more recent ones that you've... Um, well, you know, because uh, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, for me, recent is the 19th century. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, um, uh, the the the, uh, the one uh, I, I'm I'm just a little cautious about dealing with recent cases because in many instances the individuals concerned are still alive, yeah. and I'm, I'm I'm I just don't like intruding. Or, or, or talking too much about about those cases. Uh, it's, it, it's something that I, I'm 
uncomfortable with. Um, okay. I, I'm, happy, I'm happy with you. I'm happy with the older cases, but modern stuff, I'm going, well, you know, this is a family who might have suffered uh, an, an unwanted attention. I don't think I want to, um, to talk too much about that. Yeah. Okay. So if I, if I reframe that slightly then, um, obviously, you know, as part of your research, you will have come across cases more recently. And I guess, have you had the um, opportunity to experience poltergeist activity yourself, not just from record, reported um, incidents, but actually witnessed anything yourself? Well, I can, I can tell you this. As part of my um, professional research, all the books that I've written, I have spent endless hours in allegedly haunted castles and theatres and homes. I have uh, explored tunnels and secret passages. I've spent nights in prehistoric monuments. You know, I have uh, been on vigils. I've um, gone to, to places that are reputed to have various kinds of paranormal activity, and in all that time, not once have I had a paranormal experience. I'm a very boring individual. <laughs> I'm sure you're not a boring individual. I, 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 I just think that the, 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 the whatever it is they are, um, just don't want to come out and play when I'm there, because they go, oh, look at him, he's boring, you know. And he's a skeptic, and we're not going to go out and, and you know show 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 what we can do. We'll wait for the we'll, we'll for, wait for the next crowd. So not once have I had any kind of paranormal experience. In terms of um, and it does link to this next question, but in terms of obviously how things were reported and how people perceived activity, you know, many years ago. Um, and now we're very much into that kind of scientific evaluation of and and if every angle of a room is, is not covered, then we wouldn't believe it to be true. And even then we go further than that to say, well, actually, you've got to be there to, to believe it. And then you can't kind of sell the idea anyway. So in terms of reporting, our reporting measures have changed considerably and are as fashionable, I'm sure, as the beliefs around poltergeist activity. Is there anything um, that is there any theme that you can kind of pick out of some of those cases that we spoke about where people are observing and recording and reporting it in a, in a specific way or is it very much just almost like a story that gets passed from person no, no, to person? No. The, the big, one of the big changes takes place in the um, uh, middle of the 19th century with the, the rise of spiritualism um, and you know, you know you and your readers will all know a great deal about, about spiritualism but it changed the way that, that people interpreted what was actually happening and this is particularly the case because if you were if there was a an, an event took place that was in a relatively small town not in the not in the city center there would be very few people who would feel qualified if that's the word to mm. investigate but with the rise of spiritualism a, a class of people in Scotland, in Britain, and right across the world, sort of took it upon themselves to become self-appointed experts and at interpreting various phenomena. So time and time again, and in, in, the, in the cases in Scotland uh, in the 19th century, what you find is that someone is having a, a poltergeist experience in their home, they contact you know, the police, they contact the civil authorities, everyone's at a loss, and then the spiritualists turn up, you know, the, 
they just turn up and say, we are experts and we can interpret this. And of course, what they do, they always interpret the poltergeist activity as being messages from beyond. Mm. And, and because they are always, you can tell this from the reports, they're always middle class or above, they're always educated, they're always confident, and they always have a, um, a sort of a manner about them, the, the authorities, who haven't got a clue what to do about these things, go, yeah, okay, you can come in and um, tell us what's going on, because you can see that they're, you know, they're acting out of desperation. So, whereas a century before, people said, oh, that's the witches or the demons or whatever, in the 19th century, what you find is... Uh, uh, confident, self-appointed experts, usually from the world of spiritualism, are turning up. Now, we have to be very grateful to them, because the great thing that they did is that they usually recorded their cases. So even though they had one interpretation of what's going on, the, with any paranormal case, whether it's a poltergeist or anything else, there are two phases. One is the event and the recording of the event, and the second is the interpretation. So you may or may not agree with the interpretation that the spiritualists had. But the great thing is that they did record the events, and it's thanks to them that we know a great deal about 19th century poltergeist cases. And, and, and now, of course, spiritualism still has a big role in, in terms of paranormal investigating. And I don't mean that in terms of just going out there ghost hunting in groups. I mean that in terms of um, being a another part of any kind of science that people bring to the table it's just another part of an, a bigger investigation into something um, but of course probably less recorded by somebody who was spiritualist and more now leaning on the scientific approaches um, because that's where we're at today yeah well, it, well for example uh, there was, uh, there's a case from Port Glasgow in, in 1864 um, at the, you know a tenement um, flat where poor industrial workers were living. Very intensive uh, sort of poltergeist activity, all the usual things you would expect, movement, noises, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the police were involved because huge crowds were turning up outside this place and blocking the hallway and blocking the street, and, and the authorities didn't have a clue. And so a, a local spiritualist who was, um, I think he was a merchant, um, and he turned up and just... He wasn't asked, he just turned up and said, I'm here to help, I can... And they said, yeah, okay, you, you know what you're talking about, come in. These days, that wouldn't happen. These days, what would happen was that the paranormal group would come knocking on your door and say, we're the experts, we're here to help. Yeah, come in, you can... Because we haven't got a clue what's going on. So, you know, it's, it's, it's horses for courses. 19th century, you've got experts who are spiritualists. These days, you've got experts who are paranormal, paranormal groups. And what's out of all of the cases that you've obviously, um, you know, deeply researched and looked into, what's your favourite one? I know you mentioned the one earlier in terms of um, the Glen Luce one, but apart from that, what, what would one would really stand out for you as being oh, right. something? Well, well, it, well the, the, this one is, is the one I mentioned earlier, the one in, in Port Glasgow, 1864. And the reason is, is because from my, in, with my scriptwriter hat, I always think visually. You know, um, when I'm telling the story, I'm always looking for the visual story. I don't want just people sitting in a room talking. I want to see see something that sort of will make people go, whoa, you know. Um, and so there's, there's an element in this. Um, so it was a very small tenement apartment. 
um, family crammed in there, you know, typical industrial uh, claustrophobia, um, and you have two police officers, and you have this merchant who's also a spiritualist. And they had, they've been told that the, uh, the Polt tended to be most active between 7 and 10 p.m. So they turned up about, uh, up then and they just waited. About 9 p.m., uh, the, the scratching started. And this was followed by the Polt's signature sound, which was what sounded like a sledgehammer hitting, uh, different parts of the, the tenement. And there, it, it came, it seemed to come from beneath the bed. Um, so the police officers, uh, who obviously only had candles and lanterns at this point, um, were investigating and going around searching for the source of this noise. They couldn't find anything. Then the sort of tappings, knockings, raps started, and the spiritualists there thought, you know, that sounds like a tune. And so he whistled a the tune, and the knocks banged away in time to this tune. So, then he whistled another popular Scottish air of the time, and the pulp banged away in time to the tune. So they all started whistling the most popular one, which is Scots Wahey, and the pulp joined in. So I love this idea that of a musical pulp. They're joining yeah. in with their, well, their whistling. That's not very common. And then it gets even weirder. Um, bangings continue. So they're going, right, there must be something here. Police officer goes downstairs to the tenement below. There's no, no one's doing those noises there. It's coming from the tenement. They move all the furniture. They can't find anything. They get a pickaxe and they tear up part of the floorboards. Um, and they end up with a big hole in the floor. Presumably someone's going to pay for this to be repaired later, but they're looking at, so they I have this image of two police officers, the merchant, the family, all leaning over this hole in the floor with their candles and banging coming from the hole <laughs> where there's nothing to bang onto. And I thought that's wow. just a, such a visual thing. I just thought that would just be great because that would just, you know, that is just like a movie that is, you know. And then, uh, by the way, it just went away, the bolt, just, you know. Just disappeared. So, so that would be a very bad movie, you know, because it would just... It would just disappear and then people go, oh, there's no ending. You know, let's go get that screen. Yeah. How many of your, um, of your, um, I suppose, how much of your research has informed your screenwriting? So is there anything you can say? Is there any a particular piece of poltergeist um, research that you've said actually? No, not, 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 not from poltergeist, not. Um, no, not not on poltergeist because I haven't actually written about a poltergeist in a, in, a, in, a, in a screenwriting context. One day, one day that will happen. But uh, no, I haven't. Uh, not, uh, some of the stuff from my other books have informed some of my other scripts, but not not directly poltergeist three. Um, and for the benefit of everyone listening, Jeff, what what have been the topics of some of your other books? Oh, you know, I just deal with really dull subjects, you know. <laughs> you certainly Witch don't. Witchcraft, ghosts, stone circles, folklore, earth mysteries, sea monsters, loch monsters, cryptozoology, zombies, uh, bloody history, very bloody history, um, <laughs> diseases, 
torture, prison, punishment, zombie. I've said zombie. I've said zombies already, but you know, you, you get that. Get, you get that impression. Can you tell that as a ch- I was a very morbid child? Yeah, you, you it's worrying, isn't it? You get that sense, yeah. <laughs> I do. Full of joy. Yes, that was me. That was me. Happy. I was. I was. I was. I was a little ray of sunshine. Yeah, I'm sure. How can people get a hold of you, Jeff, or, or, or look into some more work that you do? You've got your website, haven't you, jeffholder.com? Yeah, jeffholder.com, that's where, where most of the sort of, uh, that's where I'm mostly moving mysterious ways. But I'm also on Twitter, uh, jeffholder58, and I'm on you know, that there Facebook. And uh, if you're in the business world, if you're in the film world, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and you know, so you know, there's all sorts of places where you can connect and find out uh, uh, what what it is that I'm up to, which is mostly staring at a, a blank screen and drinking tea. That's mostly what I'm up to. But you know, what I pretend is, is that I'm working hard. Mm. Well done. You don't do it very successfully with all those books. Thank you. Well, Jeff, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you this evening, and um, we've learned a lot about um, Scottish history and poltergeist and the theories. That, that we go through, I suppose, it, it, as well, she says as she stumbles all over her words. Um, but you know those kind of phases that we go through, those those fashionable ideas about what poltergeist activity is, where they come from, um, to today's current place where there is still that um, lack of understanding. We're still running around trying to find out what what poltergeist is. We're still defining it differently depending on where you live mm-hmm. um, and what group you're part of. Um, and I've no doubt at all that in 50 years' time we could be having the same interview, saying the same things, because we'll have just moved to a different fashionable state. Yeah, yes. I, 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 or there will have been a paradigm shift, and you know, someone in the scientific community will actually be able to establish communication with a poltergeist, and will be, you know, the world will have changed. I can't believe you don't think that's already not already happened. <laughs> well, um... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying a word. I'm not. No, no I'm stunned. Yeah. Even as a as a medium, I and probably more so. I hope as a medium, when I when I work with people, I will always say, do not make a leap of faith. If you can't take what I'm saying, don't take it, because mm-hmm. the power of suggestion is such a strong, um, a strong indicator of kind of the next step what happens next and we see that from people like Darren Brown etc and how 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 easily people can be manipulated mm-hmm. and certainly from from attending um, investigations etc I've seen the power of suggestion work so wonderfully um, and so easily with no effort at all from anybody there um, and one of the things you were talking about earlier is this kind of poltergeist that that listen and they, they kind of respond to the name that people give them and the amount of times I've sat in, in a group and watched people say does your name begin with A and the planchette doesn't move does it begin with B it doesn't move they might get up to the letter S and somebody goes and it moves and they go oh is it Sarah yes that's it I'm like oh my word yes. how did that just happen how did you think that was okay um, but but that's the power station is is a massive influence, isn't it? It is, but, uh, but let, let's let's sort of step back from that that moment. Um, one of the possibilities, I have no idea whether this is true or not. One of the possibilities is that poltergeist are some kind of discarnate entity. Let's let's say, for example, that they might be, 
this notion of responding to names that are suggested to them is actually deeply manipulative. If they are discarnate entities, if being you know the big word, then they're what they do when they are toying with the individual. Uh, 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 Why I always have this image in my head: the poltergeists are like the um, the the they're like the adolescence on glue of uh, <laughs> of the of the paranormal world. You know, imagine imagine them sort of you know wherever they are. Go. <laughs> He would have did that. He suggested our name, and I said that was our name. Oh, I mean, you believed him. That's not, there's something juvenile, pure yeah. about poltergeists. And if they are discarnate entities, they're not super smart, I don't think, but they may be manipulative. So suggest the names. I'm not sure that's a very good idea. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thank you, Jeff. It's been, it has been really interesting, and um, you know, there's so many more things I could. I could talk with you about because there's so many different subjects that you've researched. Um, and I'm sure if, if it's okay with you, I'll come back to you and, and have another conversation about different things, whether that might be about your zombies or, or, or something else that you've, you've written about. It would um, be a pleasure. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for tonight. And uh, everybody, jeffholder.com is where you'll find all the up-to-date information and reviews for Jeff's books. Um, and as Jeff has already said, you can find him on Twitter and Facebook. Um, just one more thing, Jeff, where can people buy your books? Where's the easiest place to buy them? Um, well, you can buy them through the website or you can go onto that there, Amazon. Um, and, you know, they're, they're all there. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much and you take care. You too. Cheers. Show is over for now. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.